2: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really exciting show for you today, a little bit different. I'm excited to have with me Daryl Ranham, who is uh, actually a lawyer, so it's our first lawyer to have on the show, and I think it's going to be really interesting. Daryl is, uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you, Daryl is actually the vice president of patient safety and risk management at a medical malpractice company called The Doctor's Company in Columbus, Ohio, However, we're not going to sell any insurance today. Daryl is on the show to talk about a really interesting paper that he and his colleagues published recently in the Journal of Patient Safety. And it's about leading, it's actually called The Leading Causes of Anesthesia Related Liability Claims in Ambulatory Surgery Centers. And I think it's going to be really interesting to have a discussion with Daryl about how. Legal liability plays into our practice in anesthesia, so I think this will be great. And I also want to point out that this week's episode will be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. Regular listeners will know that we've been doing uh, an episode every month featured on AnesthesiologyNews.com. If you don't know, Anesthesiology News is a great independent monthly newspaper specifically for anesthesiologists. They've got all kinds of great stuff, and you can find their archives, all their multimedia, web-exclusive content, everything they've got at AnesthesiologyNews.com, so go check it out. All right, without further ado, let's bring in our guest. Uh, And so, Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So let's just dive right in and start kind of with an interesting question, I think. So you're obviously a lawyer by training, and you uh, have made a career uh, focusing in medical liability. So I'm interested, how did you initially get interested? Were you interested right out of law school, or what got you interested in medical liability?
3: Actually, I started my career in a hospital laboratory. I was a medical technologist working in hematology, blood bank, and chemistry. Uh, I completed law school while I was in the laboratory. But after practicing law for a short time, I was missing medicine and decided to look for ways of getting back in, and so I found uh, a medical malpractice insurance company and started providing medical legal consulting to the hospitals and physicians
2: that they insured. Nice. So kind of a way to combine interests. Exactly. All right, great. Well, let's start off very basically. Um And, you know, I don't know what what all of our listeners' experiences are with this, hopefully not a lot of personal experience with being sued, but let's just start, and let me ask you, what does it actually take for an anesthesia provider to get sued?
3: Well, the answer is not very much. If a patient feels that they've been harmed because of anesthesia care and they do not receive an adequate explanation, they might seek the assistance of a lawyer to help them get answers. Uh, Most patients don't have the background to decide on their own whether they are harmed because of negligence or uh, some other reason, so they often look for that assistance. Uh, Sometimes patients or family members will file claims because they have a financial need. Uh, Let's say just using dental damage, for example, if they don't have dental insurance or they cannot afford to repair the teeth that were damaged um, during a surgical procedure, uh, they might ask for compensation to help pay for those things there really are very few hurdles that impede filing a claim. Um, and by the way, we define a claim as any de- demand for compensation. Uh, and then a lawsuit is a filing of a summons and complaint with a court. Okay. In some states, there are review boards, but the findings of review boards are rarely binding. And so play- plaintiffs can pursue lawsuits even if a review board finds against them. So there are few hurdles that they have to cover.
2: Okay, great. So it's pretty easy. You can basically sue if you want to sue. Uh, You don't have to meet any standard of proof to file the lawsuit. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And then let's say the next step, uh, what is actually required for not just the suit to be filed, but for a provider to actually be found liable uh, for something that happened?
3: Yes. The law provides for very specific elements uh, that must be met in order for a plaintiff or a patient to be successful in their claim. Uh, the first is that they would have to show that the provider that they're suing actually entered into a relationship with them. So in other words, the provider has agreed to provide care to the patient. Uh, this relationship creates a duty of care, or as we say, uh, a duty to provide competent care. and what, We mean by competent care is uh, the care that a reasonably prudent professional would provide. Okay. Uh, The second uh, element is a breach of the duty, which means that the care provided was substandard. Uh, We look to experts to help us define what care is appropriate and what care was not appropriate. Um, And again, we're looking to see what a reasonably prudent professional would do in the same or similar circumstances. The third element is that the patient must demonstrate that they suffered a harm. They can't be just angry about something. They actually have to show that there is a compensable harm. And then the last element is the most important element, and that is patients must be able to show that the substandard care actually caused the harm. So there's a causal connection there. Okay. Um, It's often difficult for patients to prove all four elements. In fact, in our experience, in fact, with most malpractice carriers, between 75 and 80 percent of all claims and suits that are filed result in no payment to the claimant. So that shows you that there are patients filing claims when they're not really sure if there's a legal basis. And there are things that we can talk about that will help, I think, uh, clinicians address that particular issue. Great.
2: All right. So you have to have a duty to provide care. You have to or that I guess it has to be shown that you had a duty to provide care, that you breached the duty, that a harm was caused, and that the harm was caused by the breach of duty. Correct. Okay, great. So I think a lot of people wonder this. I certainly have. Can a patient sue a provider uh, for a complication that was listed as a possible complication in the consent form? Uh, and I guess to just take it another step, not only can they sue, but you know, are, uh, is it, can they be successful with that suit? Yeah. Uh, the answer is yes.
3: Really, um, patients have the burden of proving you know, that the care was not uh, appropriate or did not meet acceptable standards. So even if that particular complication was listed on the consent form, it doesn't mean that the patient is consenting to uh, substandard care. So one of the big issues often is determining whether the care was acceptable or not. Um, we look at the outcome. We look at the documentation. We try to figure out uh, care appropriate patient under these circumstances. So yes, the answer is that even if a complication is listed on the consent form, it still may be the basis for a valid claim or or lawsuit.
2: Okay, so in my understanding correctly that uh, you know, let's say that we're talking about placing a central line, and you know, we know pneumothorax is a potential complication. But if I place that central line in such a way as to be negligent in my approach to doing it, then even though it's listed as a possible complication, the, I could still be successfully sued because I didn't provide appropriate care when placing that central line. That's correct. Okay. So now you did a study that I mentioned earlier uh, that was uh, at least e-published uh, ahead of print uh, in la- before the, the uh, start of 2018. So just, I think, at the end of 2017 in the Journal of Patient Safety, and you looked at a variety of things. You looked at closed claims between, I think, 2007 and 2014. And interesting, you compared freestanding ambulatory surgery centers to hospital operating rooms. So I'm curious why that comparison? Why did you decide to make that comparison?
3: Often when we conduct studies of medical malpractice claims, it's hard to determine the significance of the data. So we're looking at numbers. We're trying to figure out, is this good or bad? Um, and so we look for some point of reference it's often helpful to find a second source of data uh, against which to compare findings. In this particular study, we thought that showing hospital operating room anesthesia data alongside of uh, ambulatory anesthesia data would enable a discussion of differences and similarities. So the hospital data kind of gives us context. So that was the only reason for making that comparison. Okay,
2: great. And now, just so everyone's on the same page, you used a scale, I believe it was called the National Association of Insurance Commissioners Injury Severity Scale to grade injury severity. So can you give me some examples of, you know, I, I think it's a one through nine scale, and what, do, what are the, what do those numbers represent?
3: Those numbers go from minimum severity to high severity. Um, And we break those nine into three categories, low, medium, and high severity. But let me talk to you about the specific um, steps. Uh, The low severity, number one, is emotional injury. And that could include things like providing incorrect laboratory results to a patient, such as telling them that they have a cancer diagnosis, and then uh, they learn later on that they are not ill. Um, That might result in emotional trauma. Also, things like breach of confidentiality or or discrimination uh, could... Be considered um, emotional trauma. Okay. Uh, number two, uh, temporary insignificant means damaging a tooth that can be repaired, a laceration that can be stitched up and, and heals, um, a delay in recovery, but patients don't suffer any significant long term harm. Okay. Uh, temporary major is number three. I'm sorry, temporary minor is number three, and that includes things like infections. You know, patients get post operative infections. Uh, sometimes they can suffer a fracture uh, that heals correctly. Uh, those are temporary and they're not um, dis- disabled. Uh, then we have very major, which are things like burns, uh, surgical material left in during surgery. In the anesthesia setting, sometimes we've seen uh, material drop down into the airway that has to be um, retrieved surgically. So that can be temporary, no long-term sequelae, but it can result in uh, some major, you know, major surgery, okay. thoracotomy, yeah. for example. Uh, permanent minor is number five: loss of fingers, injury to organs that are not disabling, significant scarring. And then we get into the high severity uh, injuries, and those are number six through nine. Number six is permanent, significant, such as loss of hearing, loss of a limb, loss of an eye, or one kidney. So they're significant, but they're not, you know, totally disabling. Then you get into permanent major, which is paraplegia, blindness, loss of two limbs, brain damage. Permanent grave is number eight, quadriplegia, severe brain damage, lifelong care, or a fatal prognosis, and then number nine is death. Okay,
2: so quite a range, and, uh, and you saw all of those. I'm sure if you look at a big enough sample, you'll see everything across that spectrum. Right. Okay, and does it tend to be, I would imagine, more common the lower numbers, of course, are more common, the higher numbers less common.
3: Uh, Yes, to some extent that that's true. And, um, you know, there are a lot of factors that play into this. Some is just the willingness of a a person to file a claim. If they suffer a minor injury, a lot of people don't even pursue claims. Sure. Um, So those numbers don't show up in our data. Okay.
2: And so how frequent were the higher levels of harm?
3: Well, we saw in the hospital OR claims that uh, roughly a third of those claims had high severity injuries. And of course, we're talking about patients with higher acuity levels, more complex cases. Um, And then in the ambulatory surgery setting, the anesthesia claims, we had about 19% of them that were in the high severity range. Uh, This can be due to complications that run anticipated. Sometimes you just get into situations that you don't plan for, uh, and patients, of course, when they're under anesthesia, uh, it's serious medicine and can, uh, can suffer harm. Right. Absolutely. So what were
2: the most common procedures that involved closed claims?
3: Well, shoulder surgery showed up uh, uh, most frequently. I'm not really sure I had reason for that. Um, we can only speculate as to why shoulder surgery was the highest. After reviewing the clinical summaries associated with those cases, we saw many of the same types of injuries, anesthesia injuries, that we saw in other types of cases. Um, so, uh, ho- however, we did find a few cases where positioning of the patient made the airway management more complex, especially when attempting to address deteriorating vital signs or other situations like when resuscitation was needed. Sure. Uh, you know, if the surgeon's in the middle of a procedure, they don't like to uh, uh, to stop partway through, um, but even if the uh, patient is experiencing decreases in their vital signs. Right. And then there are some complications with regional anesthesia, you know, nerve injury or temporary paralysis of a diaphragm. And then on rare occasions, we saw some monitoring of oxygen perfusion of the brain as being more complex in patients in an upright position, you know, sitting or in a beach chair position. I think there's been some literature written about that, and anesthesiologists and CRNAs are taking precautions to make sure that these patients don't suffer brain injury, making sure that the oxygen perfusion and upper body blood pressures are appropriate to
2: maintain it. Right, absolutely. So this, for example, we tell our residents that uh, if, for example, you're in a seated position and you have an arterial line, you want to have that transducer at the level of the head so that you know what the pressure is there. And if not, if you don't have the arterial line, you obviously want to be keeping in mind that whatever blood pressure your blood pressure cuff is measuring on the arm uh, is significantly below the head, and so you want to keep it a little higher. So that's, uh, I think, for sure, I would buy that that's part of why shoulder... And I think what you found, uh, if I remember from the paper, is that shoulder surgery was more than double uh, the next most common, which was knee surgery. And so, you know, I yes. think the things you mentioned make a lot of sense. Uh, it's hard to uh, get at the airway in a seated uh, patient. If you need to resuscitate, you've got to try to change position where someone having knee or hip surgery is already supine uh, and so easier to get to. The other thing I wonder, and I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on this, as I was thinking about this, is in general, I would imagine that if you're comparing the cohort of people having shoulder surgery to the cohort having... Knee, for example, knee and hip surgery, it's probably a younger, healthier crowd having the shoulder surgery. Maybe they're, you know, have a rotator cuff tear from weightlifting or from playing tennis or whatever it may be. Uh, and so I wonder if, if you're healthier going in and something bad happens, if you're more likely to be upset and, and have a long, it's more likely to cause more of a consequence for you and then maybe you're more likely to sue. Does that ring true at all or, or no? Yes, I think
3: so. Um, I think patient expectations are extremely important driver in uh, malpractice claims. Um, that's why we see in neurosurgery cases, for example, um, surgery on a patients' heads, brains, for example, we see very few claims related to those, but we see many related to back surgeries. So, we think it's largely due to patients' expectations for what those outcomes will be.
2: Interesting. All right. Well, we'll definitely get back to that because that's, I think, something we have a role in, in helping set. Um, all right. So you, you found that dental damage and pain were more likely to result in claims in the ambulatory surgery center than in the hospital setting. So I'm curious, why do you think these are successful claims uh, now, we talked a little about this, but these are things that are, are known, right? Pain and potentially dental damage. We know these are possible side effects of anesthesia and surgery, uh, and yet there's a lot of successful claims or, or a reasonable number of successful claims for these things. Do you have any, any idea why are juries or judges or whoever's making these decisions, why are they finding, is it because this is pain that's been proven to be un, unreasonable or dental damage that's shown to be unreasonable? Or how, is, how are these getting settled? Yeah, that's a good question, but let me give you a little more context. Uh,
3: for one thing, when we study these claims, we often wrestle with the issue, do we want to look at only claims that have been successful, in other words, that there's been compensation or indemnity paid, or do we want to look at all claims? And in this particular situation, we chose to study all claims because we were interested in learning uh, the drivers behind patients filing claims and suits. Gotcha. So, So what The numbers that you're seeing are of all claims. And what we find, as I mentioned earlier, is that really a small subset of those claims result in successful uh, outcomes for a plaintiff. And overall, in anesthesia claims, ambulatory anesthesia claims, we're finding only about uh, 20 to 25% of patient claims actually result in a payment. So if we're looking specifically at tooth damage, for example, only 28% of those claims that are filed result in a payment. Um, Tooth damage can be due to uh, even, you can suffer tooth damage even with high quality care or tooth damage, of course, can result from negligent care. So it's often uh, an attempt to try to assess. And if there's good documentation that, that patients had, poor dentation, for example, um, it's harder for those patients to be successful in their claims. Now, because of the low dollar value of dental claims, they rarely make it to uh, to a court of law. They're typically negotiated um, at the claim stage. Now, if we're talking nerve damage, if we, those injuries can be significantly worse. Uh, but even with nerve damage claims, only about 17% of the claims resulted in a payment, so we're looking here at, what, 83% of the claims filed by a patient are unsuccessful. And then pain, ongoing pain, uh, chronic pain, often due to nerve damage, uh, Those in those situations, uh, patients are successful in only about 21% of those claims.
2: Okay, interesting. And do you have any feel for, you know, let's just use the dental damage example, 20 to 25% are successful of these claims. Is it... I mean, one obvious thing would be, you know, if it was just a grossly negligent, you, you know, you knocked out all the teeth or, you know, whatever. But are there, you know, are there things that you th- have noticed that differentiate the successful cases from those that aren't? Is it degree of damage? Uh, is it, you know, something else? What's going on?
3: Um, it, it's often hard to tell, uh, but I would say that patients who go into surgery with healthy teeth, good dentation, Uh, that's documented as such are more likely to be successful. In fact, uh, some anesthesia groups will almost pay these out of pocket for any claim, and they'll manage them themselves rather than going through the insurance company. So that might be why we're seeing a lower percentage of successful claims here is that um, maybe the anesthesiologist has looked at the case and said, look, this was really uh, a difficult airway. We didn't have any choice. Um, we tried our best not to do any damage to your teeth but but it did happen, and therefore those types of cases typically are not successful
2: okay now, what if i say uh, you know let 's say we have our standard of course you know pre op consent form let 's say I do an addendum, I write on there you know I think this patient is particularly high risk for you name it, let's say, you know, dental damage because of X and Y, or, you know, a nerve injury in this case because of X and Y. And I've explained that to the patient. I've detailed, you know, and I write all this down. I've detailed why I think they're extra high risk, higher than normal. And I then have the patient sign that. Is that helpful if I were to get sued that I have that written down? Um, the quality of the
3: documentation definitely is a factor. Uh, good documentation shows. Implies that the clinician was paying close attention and considered all of the comorbidities, all of the factors uh, that need to be considered in assessing this patient and preparing for their procedure. Now, if the if this conversation takes place uh, an hour before surgery, then everyone is less inclined to call that surgery off and say, "Well, let me think about it a little bit." Right. Uh, so some groups are actually seeing patients a week ahead and talking with them about these issues and. Uh, giving patients, number one, more time to think about what the anesthesiologist or CRNA has shared with them, uh, but also it gives the clinician time to say, you know what, I think we've got some potential uh, difficulties here. I really think this patient should be seen in a hospital setting and not uh, not treated or not uh, not have surgery in the ambulatory setting. And all of those assessments, all that documentation really does help to demonstrate that the care provided by the clinician Uh, is appropriate and meets the standard of care and remember from our earlier conversation we said that patients are only compensated if there is some deviation from the standard of care right
2: okay now I want to revisit the question of pain give me a little more uh, information about that when patients sue because of pain are we talking about they're saying wow I experienced a ton of pain you know in the Recovery room, for example, and uh, it, it, I think it was inappropriately painful. Or are they saying I now have ongoing pain from the procedure? Most of those cases are
3: ongoing pain. Okay. So if you have a, uh, you know, a regional anesthesia, for example, and you damage a nerve in the process, um, you know, and those are those are difficult cases because number one, it's hard to assess the amount of pain that the patient's suffering, and number two, it's hard to determine. Whether the injury was due to negligence or not, so um, those those are really difficult cases.
2: Okay. Now I would imagine, but tell me if I'm wrong, that. A claim of, you know, oh, I I had knee surgery and now my knee uh, is extremely painful would be more likely to be directed against the surgeon, but a claim of, oh, they did a femoral nerve block, the anesthesiologist did, and now I have, you know, pain in my femoral nerve distribution, that would be more likely to be against the anesthesiologist. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, um... In both the hospital ORs and the ambulatory uh, surgery centers, um, you found, uh, I believe, that having additional comorbidities, a patient with additional comorbidities, made claims more likely. Which I think makes sense because obviously patients with major comorbidities are going to be more likely to have a poor outcome in general, with whatever kind of care they get, be it good or bad. Is that taken into account when you're when these cases are being uh, looked at? Yes. If a patient
3: has a comorbidity, experts will review the, the uh, documentation to see that that comorbidity was taken into consideration in the plan for this patient. So it's extremely important that documentation reflect that as, that level of assessment. And then also, uh, if patients have uh, complications like, uh, let's say, a cl- blood clotting disorder, um, if that's known but no steps are taken to prepare for the possible uh, bleeding of this patient, um, then that would be viewed as substandard care. So, so we're looking at ways that we can uh, not only provide high-quality patient care, which means assessing all the comorbidities and what impact they may have,
2: and planning for the comorbidities to impact the care as it's being delivered. Great. And so this gets back a little bit to what I asked before. It's if a patient does have a significant comorbidity, and I believe that puts them at higher risk, that I should document that really well. And as you said, maybe even ideally not in the hour before surgery, but in a pre-operative clinic visit.
3: Yes, that would be ideal. That way production pressures aren't pushing this process forward when a clinician is really feeling like this may not be a good uh, setting, or we may not be prepared to handle this patient now that we 're aware of these comorbidities,
2: okay, and you know something that comes up not frequently, but every once in a while i 'm curious to hear your opinion on would be that you know uh, a patient let's say doesn 't go to the preoperative clinic or they do and and it 's not thought of then, but you know they I see them and it 's an hour before their surgery, and the surgeon has scheduled the surgery, and I review the chart and i Go to see the patient, and I think this is so high risk that I don't think it's a good idea and uh, you know the patient and I try to have that discussion with the patient and i'm uh, and I say to them, you know I think this is a you have a very high risk of morbidity and mortality here, and i I would very seriously consider not going ahead, but the surgeon says, no, I disagree, I think we should go ahead, and the patient wants to go ahead is my if I document that this discussion happened and that I'm going ahead at the patient and the surgeon's wishes, is that uh, at all protective if this ends up badly and then a lawsuit is filed? Um, Yes, I think think any
3: documentation that reflects the clinician's assessment and um, conclusions is helpful to that clinician if there are questions about the care. Um, We really emphasize with surgeons that they need to listen to anesthesia professionals' when they have concerns about uh, proceeding with a surgical procedure. Um, Really, there ought to be a meeting of the minds between the surgeon and the anesthesia provider before they take this patient to surgery. Uh, It really represents the best interest of the patient, even though it can muck up
2: the uh, schedule for that day. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so let's get back to the question of comorbidities. What was the most common comorbidity associated with the claims that you looked at?
3: Uh, the one that popped up most frequently was obesity, and we find that obesity uh, can have an impact on outcomes in several situations. Number one, it can make uh, airways more difficult. So it's really important that airways be assessed. And if um, if it looks like a difficult airway and so they're not going to intubate and uh, use some other uh, method of anesthetic or anesthesia... Um, it's still important to know what are we going to do if this patient is in crisis and we do need to secure an airway. Uh, that all needs to be assessed in advance. But co- but the comorbidity of obesity can make that more complex. And then of course with regional anesthesia, finding the landmarks and all can be uh, more difficult if you have a morbidly obese patient.
2: Great. Now, if you you know could make the decision and you had clients, let's say who were you know anesthesiologists and surgeons, it, it, would you just tell them? Hey, look, obese patients just don't do them in the ASC. Take them to the hospital where you know it's a little bit more control of a controlled setting. I mean, is that should we be thinking about that, or do you think it's it's not uh, necessarily important to do that?
3: Um, I think that the decision is is more complex from the standpoint that I think that all of the situations regarding this patient need to be taken into consideration. Uh, some obese patients can be handled safely in um, the ambulatory surgery center situation. But again, it's that assessment, the, uh, the ASA scores, for example, um, all that ought to be considered before deciding whether to do this patient in the ASC or taking them to a hospital OR. I wouldn't want to make a blanket statement, and I'm not qualified to make a blanket statement that all obese, all, all obese patients would need to be done in a hospital OR.
2: Okay, fair enough. So you also found that the most common contributing factor was technical performance. Can you tell me a little more about what that means?
3: Yes, technical performance, performance in our taxonomy is a little bit confusing, uh, partly because it's referring to all of the technical aspects of the procedure, but it seems to imply that if there was a technical performance issue that it was negligence, which is not true. Um, Technical performance uh, can include everything from known complications to, um, to substandard care, I was just looking here through my notes to uh, give you a clear percentage of how that broke out. And in our in our claims, in the te- technical performance was a contributing factor in 47% of our ASC anesthesia claims. So we broke those down into subcategories and found that in almost 80% of those cases, 80% of the 47% this is what I um, known to the patient ahead of time. Uh, They were part of the informed consent discussion. Uh, The patient was about this risk. So that's 80% of the cases. The other 20% um, within the 47%, which actually equates to only 9% of all ASC anesthesia claims. So let's say 9% uh, were due to either poor technique, incorrect body position, uh, poor technique in resuscitation, for example, or an inappropriate method of of drug administration. So, in all the claims that we see, we're only finding substandard care in about nine percent of these cases. So that leads us to several conversations that we can have about, well, why then are these claims being filed? Sure.
2: Would and- you like? Yeah, let's get to that one second. I you you okay. cut out just a sec during the first thing you said so then we, okay. I got the part about the 9% being, you know, from poor technique and the bulk of them tell me one more time. Yes, the bulk of them uh um about uh 80% of the
3: cases in this category in the technical performance category right. are risks
2: known to the patient and are not cons- Oh Daryl, sorry, you cut out again there and I want right at the same oh, time. Okay. Maybe someone yeah. doesn't want us okay. to get this out. So eighty percent of the forty-seven percent were were risks that were known to the patient beforehand, like something stated in a consent, is that right? Can you ask your question again? You just clicked out. Sure, sure. So eighty percent of the forty-seven percent of the in the technical performance category you said were things that were known to the patient beforehand? Yes. And,
3: and we're not considered by our experts to be substandard care. Okay. So it was appropriate care, but the patient still filed a claim. So can you give, like, give me an example of what would fall in that category? Well, you can understand the complexity for patients in trying to figure out whether the, um, let's say, damage to vocal cords or um, hematoma as a result of a uh, you know, placement of uh, regional anesthesia, those kinds of things uh, patients don't expect those to happen. Even if they were part of the conversation before surgery, I think patients mostly blank out the the risks because they don't want to dwell on them, and, and therefore they don't recall them when they do occur. And so these patients uh, may not have, in fact, in most cases, I believe patients don't have the background in order to assess whether the injury they suffered was due to substandard care or was, just a complication of high-quality care. So that's why uh, patients bring these claims, and that's why I think such a high percentage of these cases are resolved
2: with no payment to the claimant. Gotcha. All right. So we've already said there's not a whole lot you can do to well, I was going to say there's not maybe a whole lot you can do to prevent patients from suing because they can sue anytime they want. But, you know, there probably are some things. And, and what do you think? I mean, are there things providers can do to just lower the risk of either causing harm in the first place or at least to, to a patient filing a lawsuit if there is harm caused?
3: Uh, yes, on both of those cases. Number one, let's talk about what we can do to avoid uh, patient harm. Um, Anytime we're talking about high-quality care, we're talking about good assessments so that we know the patient's family history, we know their history. Uh, I'm amazed how many people I talk to who say, yes, we found out during my surgery that we have a family history of a clotting disorder. Um, if that, if that information is known, then that ought to be factored, factored in. Mm-hmm. So um, other things that can be done, uh, monitoring patients during surgery. We do know that there can be distractions in the operating room, so we encourage anesthesia professionals to reduce those, those distractions to the extent possible. Now, does this mean they should never have an electronic device in the operating room? Not necessarily, because sometimes those devices can be used for um, clinical reasons, um, looking up inf- important information but it's also important for patient or for clinicians to know that if they're doing anything on those devices that is not medically related, not related to this patient's care, that that data is available electronically and we can find out and that does not um look good uh, in claims where patients have
2: suffered a harm. Sure. So for example, if I'm if they uh, my phone records show that I was surfing Facebook while my patient was, you know, desaturating, that's a problem.
3: Yes. One of the pieces of data that we can't explain at this point is uh, we are seeing an increase over time in the number of cases where, uh, where the allegation is uh, inadequate monitoring during surgery. Well, we know that the equipment hasn't gotten worse. So we are starting to suspect that maybe uh, anesthesia professionals are being distracted during procedures, and we don't know exactly why they're being distracted, but we hear stories anecdotally about electronics in the OR that uh, might be one of the reasons. Okay. Now, other kinds of things that uh, that can, I think, improve care is the quality of the teamwork that occurs within the um, operating room setting. So, once we've done an outstanding uh, assessment and we've documented um, our findings. Now we're prepared to take this patient to surgery. Now it's important for the surgical team to be able to work effectively and efficiently together. So uh, OR timeouts, for example, to make sure we've got the right patient, the right procedure, the right uh, knee, for example. Um, Introductions all around so that people can call each other by name so that when uh, requests are being made, they can be made to a specific person, and that person can use closed-loop communication to communicate back to the uh, requesting physician uh, or clinician, um, so and then and then calling that clinician by name when the step has been completed so the clinician knows that that's happened. All of those things, I think, improve the quality of the um, work experience as well as improving the quality of care provided to the patient. Okay. Other things, let's talk about the post-operative time frame. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I think we can improve quality of care in situations where, number one, we're making certain that in all of our settings we have qualified professionals monitoring patients in the post anesthesia care units. The other thing is that um, anesthesia professionals need to be available to respond in case patients uh, crash, you know, in that particular setting. Um, I've worked with organizations that accredit office- based surgery, and one of their standards is having patients. Uh, with ACLS accreditation or certification uh, with that patient until the, the patient is discharged. All of those things uh, take into consideration the possibility of a crisis at some point in the in the process of care and means that the professionals are prepared to handle those crises um, should they occur. And then the last thing I would say with regard to avoid is that being prepared to listen to patients when they have concerns, whether they are um, uh, concerns about uh, pain for ongoing pain, for example, um, if if uh, anesthesia professionals are listening closely, number one, they might pick up information that is significant clini- clinically and would help them provide care to that patient. Number two, it helps the patient to feel like the clinician really cares about them. And then number three, it positions the clinician to provide good responses back to that patient who has concerns and can provide explanations and sometimes even explain why a complication occurred and, that it, and then tie that back to the informed consent discussion that occurred before surgery in order to help patients understand what happened to them. Mm-hmm. This doesn't remove the chance that patients will still be unhappy with the outcome, but at least provides them with information for them uh, to feel like their clinical team has paid cl- close attention to them It really does care about them, and uh, they're more likely to believe those clinicians that these were, uh, you know, recognized complications that the, the t- clinical team will continue to address as time
2: goes on. Great. Do you, do you have an opinion on apologies? I, you know, it used to be there was a time when I think some some places at least told their physicians, don't say I'm sorry because it seems like it could be an admission of guilt. But now, you know, at least if, to my understanding, we're told that that actually it's been shown apologizing uh, can be helpful. It can make patients feel listened to and understood and, you know, maybe even reduce the risk of a lawsuit. Do you have a stand on that? Yeah. So let me start by giving you a, an interesting statistic. Um, in
3: 2003, we had, uh, I'm looking at the rate of claims for anesthesiologists, and we had about 10 claims per 100 FTEs for anesthesia professionals. This is back in 2003. Okay. Now, Now that has dropped from 10 claims per year to three claims per year per 100 FTEs. Uh, That's an important statistic that we monitor. Now, I can't say for certain that I know the reason that those uh, numbers have dropped off, and they have stayed low now for for probably the last seven or eight years. But I I suspect that one of the important reasons why we're seeing fewer claims is that anesthesia professionals and other uh, clinicians are better at Number one, listening to patients. Number two, saying, I'm sorry this happened to you. Mm-hmm. And number three, disclosing when an error did occur and saying, I'm sorry that we harmed you in this situation. So, um, you know, it seems counterintuitive, but I remember back, uh, actually, the American Medical Association, since the early 80s has been uh, recommending in their ethic uh, position on ethics that all information related to the patient's condition, even if it reflects poorly on the clinician, um, should be shared with the patient. Well, insurance companies, like the ones I when I work for, it took a while to come around to that position. And now we encourage our clinicians to do that in an appropriate way. And there are tools out there. You might have heard about CANDOR, C-A-N-D-O-R. Uh, that's a tool for... Approaching a patient when harm has occurred and talking with them in a way that the patient can understand that they feel appreciated, listened to, and cared about, and that uh, clinicians then have a way of apologizing either f- if if they were culpable for the for the injury or at least saying i 'm sorry that this happened to you and in most states, um, there are apology statutes. Which protect clinicians when they say, you know, I'm sorry, this happened to you, uh, and say that it's not admissible; it's not a statement of uh, of culpability.
2: Okay, that's great. I want to ask you about um, pain and opiates because I think this is such a a big topic these days. So, you know, we we've talked about how pain, whether it's acute pain in the PACU or more commonly, you know, chronic pain after a surgery, can really be a cause for some of these suits to be filed. Um, are, are you concerned that uh, we may be, we physicians may be over-prescribing opiates because we're afraid of inadequately treating pain? And I'm wondering if you have a feeling on how we can kind of balance our, our desire to help fight the opioid epidemic while also obviously uh, adequately treating pain and trying to avoid lawsuits. Uh, I think that's a really important question. And Um, Yes, I think clinicians,
3: as well as their insurers, are wrestling with that whole issue. Now, historically, clinicians have not been sued very frequently for inadequate pain management. However, um, there has been a big push on, I think, since uh, the late 90s um, to make certain that patients were not suffering pain, and I think that that pushed clinicians to the position of using more opioids in order to control pain. Now I think the, the research is starting to show that opioids are not always the best um, analgesia and that there are other tools that are um, excellent in controlling pain that don't have the same addictive properties. Um, so, yes, I think it's number one, it's important to listen to patients, help them control pain, but also to assess them carefully, number one, for the chance uh, of addiction. Um, and number two, to give them good information about how to use opioids appropriately and for uh, limited periods of time to reduce the chance that they will become addicted. Uh, That's just another aspect of good quality patient care.
2: Great. Well, Daryl, this has been, I think we've covered everything that I had down. I want to give you a chance if there's anything we didn't get to that you want to share uh, to do that, but uh, it's really been uh, interesting to hear everything you had to say. Oh, thank you, Jed. It's been nice talking with you. I do have one other thought. Please. And
3: this is related to this whole idea of. In other
2: words, there was, turned out that there was no legal basis for the claim. And oh, Darryl, so sorry, we, we, I lost the beginning of what you said uh, there. So oh, okay. tell me again right. what the one thing you wanted to say was. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the fact that such a large percentage of claims
3: are closed with no payment to the claimant. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, in looking at these cases and seeing uh, that the vast majority of these cases do not have a legal basis for a successful claim or suit, so the question is why are patients filing them? And to a large extent, I think that patients are filing them because they're not equipped to make whether uh, the effort was due to negligence or not. So historically, they've looked to lawyers to help them answer that question. I think we've seen a significant decrease over time in these claims because clinicians have become better at that. So I just wanted to emphasize the point that if a patient suffers a harm, clinicians are well served to listen to to those patients and then to provide that explanation that will link up the informed consent discussion with the experience that the patient had.
2: And I think that patients will be more satisfied and I think that clinicians Daryl, I lost you for a second, so I want to bring you back online and let me summarize where we were. I was saying, uh, you know, you had said that uh, the importance of that communication uh, with patients because often. Uh, patients are suing uh, because they don't have they don't have an answer and since they're not getting it from clinicians they're going to a lawyer to get the answer um, but that your opinion is if we as clinicians really make that connection build that relationship disclose when an error happens and have those discussions with patients that it will likely reduce the number of claims that are filed and I was saying I completely agree and I have these discussions with residents all the time where I will tell them you know we have to acknowledge how hard that is it's really really difficult as a provider to go to a patient and tell them that something went wrong, whether it was because of a mistake or not. But in my career so far, when I have done it, I've actually found it to be very rewarding. Patients tend to be very grateful. uh, And if anything, I think it actually increases the trust they have in the institution and in you as a provider.
3: I agree with what your statement wholeheartedly. I think that's an excellent statement. And also, I think that our data reflects the uh, value of doing that. That, to me, I think is the single most important factor in this significant decrease in the number of claims we've seen over the last 15 years.
2: Great. Well, Darrell, I want to thank you again for coming on and for the good work you're doing and for your article. I think it's really helpful for all of us to think about these issues, and I appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Thanks, Jed. It's been my pleasure. All right. Take care. You too. Bye bye. All right. So I hope that was useful. Check out the website, acrac.com. That's A C C R A C.com. Leave a comment. Let us know. Have you ever been involved in a lawsuit? Do you agree with Daryl and his findings from his paper about what kind of what we can do to decrease uh, claims against us? Are there other things we should be keeping in mind? We can all learn from what you have to say if you leave a comment on the website. Of course, you can also get a hold of me at akrak at akrak.com. If you are a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia podcast. Also, if you're interested in helping support the making of the show, check out patreon.com slash akrak. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash a-c-c-r-a-c where you can become a patron of the show. Even if you just give a dollar or two, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Mr. Daryl Ranham. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.